The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. Ecclesia, will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that we come to know your fullness, your love, and your grace in the form of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that as Father, you made all things, that through your Son you spoke things into existence, that you chose to draw near to us and to save us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and that even in your Son's departure, as near as you were to us, you became even nearer as you sent your Spirit to dwell within us that you promised you would never leave us or forsake us. And we pray today, God, that as we open the scriptures, that you would speak words of life, words of hope and refreshment over each of us, that you give us new eyes to see the places that we live too often for ourselves, that you'd invite us into new ways that we can live for you. We pray all of this together, and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you, Ecclesia. It is so good to be um, back and back in the place that I love to be. I uh, just flew in from having back-to-back groups in the Holy Land for two weeks, and so I am a bit jet-lagged. That usually means it's going to be my best or my worst sermon. So by the end of it, you can tell me. It depends on you feel like uh, you wake up really early and you feel like a bottle rocket. You just start flying and you never know that moment when your body's gonna go, okay, now I'm done, and it's just gonna shut down. So hopefully it doesn't happen until uh, the sermon is over. How many of you were blessed last week to hear the story of our friends Lester and Ediana from Nicaragua? Beautiful, good. I was so encouraged just to hear the reports. If you weren't with us last week, we were able to share, and we'll communicate some of it um, uh, through podcast and share the video, although we are, working diligently to protect Lester and Ediana's safety. Uh, Our friends uh, came from Nicaragua under great persecution, and last week we got to tell the story of how they've become members of the church, how they've ended up in Houston, and it's a miraculous and beautiful uh, journey along the way. And if you miss it, we'll definitely want to share it with you. When we were there at the end of October, I believe, we went down to Mexico City, And um, it's always that trade-off when you're preaching and you have a cough to decide, is it better to preach with a cough drop in your mouth and you feel like you've got a lisp or risk coughing into the microphone? I'm gonna go with the other for now. And if I revert back, I'm sorry, it's a little bit disgusting, but please forgive me. Um, When we went down at the end of October, um, we we ended up with a miraculous uh, opportunity that we really, we got there and we could see how God provided and led us to be there, and that there was this, all of a sudden you had four to 5,000 people. The government had set up an area to feed people, but there was no food. And we had come in hoping we could help feed people. And we hired food trucks and we fed people. And along the way, as you can imagine, at the end of November, all anybody was talking about was this migrant caravan. And um, we were there and we were feeding people and every media outlet you could fathom from the United States and across the globe was there. And naturally, all they wanted to do was talk to us, and we had to make a pretty quick decision to decide 
We're not here for publicity. We're not here to talk to the press. We're not here for political reasons as we're gonna discuss later on. Um, anything you say can be taken anywhere you are out of context and it really gets confusing. We just said, hey, we're not talking to the media. It's just not what we're doing. So people would come up and we wanna to talk to you. We wanna interview you. We're at the New York Times, we're CNN, we're with Fox News and we go, hey, we're just Jesus people here doing Jesus stuff. And, um, and so we just, we just refused to talk to him. And then one reporter said, okay, you don't have to give me an interview. But he goes, answer me one question. He goes, why in the world are you here? Like, what led you to come here? And every now and then you get a question, and maybe you've experienced this, that actually somebody asking you the question helps you think through. Then all of a sudden I was like, you're right, why are we here? <laughs> um, and instantly I gave him a quick response. And I, and I told him, part of what I've been reminded of in this last week, that... Um, uh, many of you know I'm addicted to taking Ecclesians to the Holy Land because there's something about reading the scripture in the place that happened that it comes alive for you. But what happens on this trip is that you go to these places, you read it with new eyes, and part of what you hear over and over again, I just can't emphasize enough, first day we get Sunday uh, to a city called Nablus in the West Bank, and it's where Jesus encountered the woman at the well. And you read this passage from John where Jesus literally and his disciples, Jews wouldn't even travel through that area. And not only does he choose to travel through that area, he crosses the boundaries that were clearly established, not only in speaking to a Samaritan, but speaking to a Samaritan woman. And he just exploded every boundary and he pursued the outsider. And then we'll go to uh, the next day, we'll be in Jesus' hometown in Nazareth and we'll go up uh, to where they tried to put G push Jesus off a cliff in Luke four. And the natural question is like, why'd they try to push Jesus off a cliff, right? Like, what did he do that so upset them? And you read the passage in Luke 4, and you know what you find? They were loving everything he was saying until he started talking about the outsiders and how much God loved the outsiders, and they were furious. Then you go from there, and we head towards the Sea of Galilee, and you're near a place where Jesus healed lepers, and he went and touched them. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar or a genius at this point to start figuring out, like, Jesus really loves the outsiders. Part of my question to you today is how are you doing in following the teaching of Jesus and pursuing the outsiders? Because I'm just guessing that most of us, in almost every way, we're on the inside. And what we want to do is say, what does it look like to be on the outside? And even in the passage we're going to read today, it's filled with, though you may not see it on the surface, with a clear message that Jesus is saying, it's about the outsiders. And God is really vividly pursuing them. So this is the passage I want us to look at today. Um, and I'll just ask you um, right off the bat, tell me what you think the most famous verse in the Bible is. John 3.16, right? No doubt about it. And most of us would realize, like, when you read anything, when you hear anything, I could take some conversations I have with some of you, and if I just took one quote out from that without context, I, it could sound crazy, right? My, my son uh, was with me uh, on the Sea of Galilee, and for some reason, we've learned this with everybody, something about staying at a hotel on the Sea of Galilee, people have weird dreams. And in the middle of the night, he sat up and he said, don't just grill it because you can. And then he laid back down and went to sleep. <laughs> and literally, forever and always, like I'm gonna get to heaven and be like, what was the context, right? That he, don't just grill it because you can, words to live by. I don't, I don't know. 
The context means everything, right? And if I were to ask you this most important, most famous verse in the Bible, John chapter three, don't answer the question yet, but how many of you know the answer? Who was Jesus talking to? So maybe one or two more than the last service. And I would just establish for you that the context of who Jesus was talking to is really important. The conversation he was having was really important. That's what we're gonna look at today in John chapter three. As I did work on the Voice Bible translation, one of the most um, challenging things for me was that realizing when you really look at ancient Bible translation, you look at the original language, there were no verses and chapters. There was just the Bible. And you just read the Bible. And verses and chapters really help us because we wanna know, hey, what page are you on and where are you at? And there, there's nothing bad about them. What it can be bad about them is that we begin to think a passage, a verse, stands on its own outside of the context, right? So when we stand with a sign at a football game, we should stand with like John chapter three and maybe read chapters two and four before that and it'll help you understand it much more, right? But it's not as catchy on a sign at a football game. So today, I want us to pull back and try to get a look at what was Jesus really saying. Now, at the same time, this is, let me set up another context for it. One is that we got a really important verse, and for most of us, the context is not entirely familiar. Secondly, um, we've got the context with the person. The person Jesus was talking to was somebody named Nicodemus. Now, on our last trip, every time I'm there, there's new things that pop up for me, but as we would walk through the city of Jerusalem as we get up on Friday and walk the Via Della Rosa. And you read these passages, and the most fascinating thing to me, the thing I'm most obsessed with coming back from this trip is this reality that for Jewish people, um, death and how you were buried was really important. In fact, still to this day, rabbis will gather their disciples and followers and tell them, hey, when I die, this is how I want you to do it. By the way, I'm the same way. I don't want you to hire a really expensive funeral home. I'd rather you give the money to the church. I'd like a few of you dudes to get together and build a pine box for me, right? And I'd like to be buried really simply and really cheap. So somebody write it down and just remember, and just go to Home Depot, build whatever you can, and find the cheapest place you can to put me because it won't matter to me at that point. Uh, these rabbis would give real clear instructions. And you know what? The disciples, the closest people to you, they were the ones that came and buried you. But you know what happens when things get really hard for Jesus? His disciples weren't there. There were these two people, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, that it tells us had secretly believed. Now, it's fascinating because the disciples and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea literally trade places. Anybody remember the movie from the 80s with Eddie Murphy? Like, this is the bigger trading places story, right? The disciples, they start running and they become secret believers. They start hiding out and locking the door. And the people that had been in secret begin to live in public. And they come out and they bury Jesus. They offer their tomb. Now, what in the world could happen that would create that kind of opportunity? Part of what I'd suggest to you, Ecclesia, is that there's really clear, clear criteria to know if you've got a good friend. If you've got a good and faithful friend, what do you think's a good litmus test? I'd suggest to you, if you've got a 2 a.m. friend, the kind of friend that you can call at 2 a.m., you've got a good friend. 
And if there are many of you here that go, I got four or five 2 a.m. friends, you're rich. You're really rich. The kind of person you call at 2 a.m. and they don't even know what the question is and the answer is already yes, right? If you got that kind of friend, then you are richly, richly blessed. And what we find in this context is the disciples already knew that. The disciples had been bragging, in fact, to Jesus. Jesus, we're 2 a.m. friends. If things go bad for you, we're there. And then remember what happened at 2 a.m.? When they get in the garden, they go to sleep, right? And then after they go to sleep, <laughs> what do they do when they captured him? Are they following, trying to help? What do we do, Jesus? They're running. Only one, John. Peter kind of hangs around. He tries to, and then he deny, deny, deny. John kind of hangs around on the fringe. The rest are on the run. So this is what we're going to look at today. John chapter 3, a passage where Jesus sits down with someone who does not believe, and he offers words that I think must have just resonated over a long period of time, multiple years, for somebody like Nicodemus. And ultimately, this one single interaction was enough that led Nicodemus and his friend Joseph of Arimathea to come to the place of a radical kind of belief. So let's look at the context, the bigger context, for the most famous and well-known verse in all the scripture. And let's see what God might be saying to us in it that maybe we didn't expect. John chapter three, this is what happens. It tells us that, that Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. So this is what you need to know. He was a part of the religious elite, but he wasn't just part of the Pharisees. He was a man with some clout among his people. What we know is he was a part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Pharisees. He's in the 1% of powerful, influential people among the Jewish nation. And he came to Jesus under the cloak of darkness to question him. And this is what he said, teacher, some of us have been talking and you were obviously a teacher who has come from God. The signs you are doing are proof that God is with you. First, he says, we know you're a teacher. And in some ways, part of what I want to suggest to you today is that Nicodemus didn't, wasn't even close to understanding who Jesus was yet. And then Jesus says, he says, you're a teacher and God's with you. And you would think Jesus would respond to that. In some ways, it sounds like he's saying something entirely different. He says, I tell you the truth, only someone who experiences birth for a second time can hope to see the kingdom of God. At first, you're like, what? how is that a response to what Nicodemus was saying? He turns to him and just says, I tell you the truth, you have to have a second birth to experience the kingdom of God. Now, for many of us, um, this language around John 3, in fact, it may have been the late 60s, early 70s became really popular to talk about believers as just believers or born-again believers, right? And often what that meant was that if you're born again, you had a radical experience, sometimes maybe really an emotional experience. Um, the cultural understanding of what it means to be born again is not the same as what Jesus was talking about. I want you to know we, got, we have to separate those two. Some of you come to faith and you didn't have some big emotional experience. You just came to faith. And, um, and you just decided, I'm going to follow Jesus with all my life and who I am. Uh, it's interesting when they use the word born-again believers in surveys and ask people. Uh, people are less likely. In fact, one survey said 70% of people don't want to live next door to a born-again believer. I don't even know what that means, but it's just fascinating that that's the stereotype, right? That's not who I want to live next to. In other words, they think those people are weird. Um, what Jesus was not talking about was some big emotional experience, 
Part of what I want to suggest to you is that Jesus was doing what he had always been doing in these same contexts and saying, Nicodemus, you think you're an insider because of your first birth. You were born as a Jew, you've lived as a Jew, and now you're the Jew of Jews, right? You're on the Sanhedrin. You're a big deal as a Jew. And Jesus was saying, your first birth doesn't matter so much to me. I care about your second birth. I care about your spiritual condition, not your ethnic identity, right? Or your religious identity. Jesus goes on. Well, Nicodemus then says, right? And now remember, it sounds like a ridiculous question, but this is an educated, smart man. He says, I'm a grown man. How can someone be born again when he's old like me? Am I to crawl back in my mother's womb for a second time? That's impossible, right? I don't think Nicodemus really thought that's what Jesus was saying. He was just saying, explain more, Jesus, because I don't get it. To be born, what does it mean? Then Jesus explains. He says, I tell you the truth. If someone does not experience water and spirit birth, there's no chance that he will make it into God's kingdom. Like from like. Whatever is born from flesh is flesh. Whatever is born from spirit is spirit. Do not be shocked by my words, but I tell you the truth. Now, how many of you can count? How many times has Jesus said, I tell you the truth thus far? Three times so far. I think he wants to be really clear, like, Nicodemus, I'm telling you the truth. He says, even you, an educated and respected man among your people, must be reborn. What's he telling him? Hey, I know you think you're an insider, but you're on the outside. You're you're not on the inside. The criteria that you use is the wrong criteria. You must be reborn by the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, your spiritual state. And then he explains more. This is a beautiful passage, and this is the part I want you just to contemplate in your own heart and life. Jesus says, the wind blows all around us as if it has a will of its own. We feel and hear it, but we do not understand where it has come from or where it will end up. He says, you look at the wind and you can't tell. You can fly a kite and kind of get a sense of where it's going, but where it's come from and where it's going, we don't know. Then he explains, he says, life in the spirit is as if it were the wind of God. What do you think he's saying? He's saying, when you trust the spirit, you don't know where life will take you. When you trust the Spirit, God's going to lead you and guide you to places that you would never have imagined. Now, the reality for most of us, especially as Western people that are totally fascinated with control, is that we don't like what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is, when you are born of the Spirit, when your life is a spiritual life, it belongs to me, and I'll take you wherever I want to take you. And, and this is the truth, Ecclesia. This is part of where I'm just hoping by the time we come to communion, then in the same way, if you got a friend that you know the answer is yes when you call him at 2 a.m., no matter what the question is, I think this is what Jesus is saying. Our answer to Jesus every time is yes. I don't know, I don't know what you're gonna say next. I don't know where you're gonna take me. At the end of the service, Jim's gonna offer you an opportunity that I'm just telling you, if the Spirit uh, lead you and guide you, this would be a really easy one. 
We have an Ecclesian that serves as a principal at Springwoods Middle School. And they're asking to say, we have kids that are kind of caught in the middle. We can find, our teachers can identify these kids. That they're not, their life's not a total mess and they're not the A students. They're these kids in the middle that are like, with a little help, they could succeed. And what they're asking us to do is just come twice a month and have lunch with them at school. Just go sit and say, hey kid, you're awesome, and get to know them. And I'm just suggesting to you that if your life belongs to God, your answer is yes before the question was asked. You just go, I could spare two lunches a month. There's not a kid in the world that wouldn't love to have a person who's learned a little bit about life come bring them Chick-fil-A and tell them you think they're great. And something will happen in that place. And here's the good news and maybe the bad news is when you live a life in the spirit and it belongs to God, you're willing to go there before you even know where you're going. Jesus keeps on teaching, right? So he says you're like the, where the wind blows. You'll feel and hear it, but you won't understand. Life in the spirit as if it were the wind of God. And then Nicodemus responds. Just as mostly the disciples and everybody else responded to Jesus, they're like, uh, I still don't know what you're saying. I still don't understand. And Jesus said, right, your responsibility is to instruct Israel in matters of faith. He says, you're on the Sanhedrin. You're a big deal. But you do not comprehend the necessity of life in the Spirit. What's he saying? You care about your birthright. You care about observing the Shabbat. You care about going to pray three times a day. You care about not touching anything that's impure or unclean. And you've got your plan. But he said, that's not the birthright I'm looking for. There's a new birthright, and it's a spiritual birth. And then he says again, what? I tell you the truth. Jesus wanted to be really clear, right? Nicodemus, I'm telling you the truth. We speak about things we know, and we give evidence about things we have seen. And you choose to reject the truth of our witness. He's letting Nicodemus know, hey, you're fascinated with who I am, but you don't understand who I am. Remember what Nicodemus said when he first came? He said, I know you're a teacher. You know what Jesus is saying back to him, I think? He says, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a teacher. You don't know who I am. Now, what I love about Jesus in this context and why I think this is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible is that to this point, he hasn't really fully explained who he is. I go, see, if you want to know who Jesus is, these are great verses we're about to read. He just really clearly says, this is who I am. Jesus goes on. Nicodemus, right? He's, Nicodemus speaks three times. He says, you're a teacher and you've got signs, right? He says uh, <coughs> the second time, right, how can, how can you be born again? And then he just says, I don't understand. That's all of Nicodemus' inter- interaction. And that helps with the context of the passage that we're talking about. Jesus goes on and says, if you do not believe when I talk to you about ordinary earthly realities, then heavenly realities will certainly elude you. No one has ever journeyed to heaven above except the one who has come down from heaven. You hear what he's starting to say? He's saying, I come from heaven. What did John tell us at the beginning, right? He said that Jesus was 
the Logos, the Word, the one that existed before time existed. And Jesus is declaring, now we get to chapter three, he's, he's saying it with his own words. The Son of Man who is of heaven, I've come from a different place. He keeps going. And this is what he says. He says, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness in the same way the Son of Man will be lifted up. Now, Nicodemus knew this story. You may remember it. It's in Deuteronomy. There were a lot of bad things that happened in the desert. <clears throat> I, just from taking people to the Holy Land, I can get a sense. Like, I got to be responsible for about 30 people. And corralling 30 people to go anywhere in the Holy Land, getting them to just show up in the lobby at the same time is challenging. I think about Moses with a couple of million right? I think that job sucks. No wonder he was just constantly like he was going, God, you got to get me out of this. This is a disaster, right? And they just kept having things go wrong, right? They'd run out of water. He'd be like, what are we going to do? And then God would give him a staff, right? He'd hit the ground and water would come forth. They wouldn't have food. They wanted meat. Moses got totally depressed. He's like, I can't feed all these people meat, right? He literally turns to God and goes, what do you want me to do? Breastfeed everybody here, a couple million people? He's like, I can't do it. It's the irony is beyond, you know, crazy, right? He, Moses, one, couldn't breastfeed, and he definitely couldn't breastfeed a couple million people. And he's just constantly fed up. Then you get this awful episode, right? It's like Raiders out of the Lost Ark where everyone's bit by poisonous snakes, now that's a bad day in the desert, right? And God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to lift up this statue of serpents and you're gonna hold it up. You're gonna invite people to look at it <coughs> and everyone who does is gonna be healed. Right? Nicodemus knew this story. So what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? He says, in the same way that Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness and everyone was healed, in the same way, the Son of Man, I, must be lifted up. And then all those who believe in him will experience everlasting life. Now think about this. Think about these verses. And imagine Nicodemus just thinking about If you interacted with Jesus, you probably went home, you took notes. Every night you go to bed, you'd be thinking about what did Jesus say to me, right? And it never really fully makes sense. And then a day finally comes where you're a part of a council. Now remember Nicodemus, we get one more reference to him later in John. When they're questioning Jesus, Nicodemus comes and says, essentially like, shouldn't we give him a chance? Like, shouldn't we let him explain? And then the Sanhedrin turns on him and says, what are you from Galilee? They say, are you one of his disciples? And he backs away, right? So we don't see at this point that Nicodemus believes. But I think every day, this is my guess, every day he's thinking about this conversation he had with Jesus in John 3. So he's got this in his mind one day, right? Here, let's read the next verse, and then I want you to just think about the context. He, he says, I'm going to be lifted up in the same way the serpent was lifted up because God expressed his love for the world in this way. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not face everlasting destruction, but will have everlasting life. Now, if you're Nicodemus, and you've thought about what Jesus was saying every day since you met him, and finally there's a day that comes that Jesus is lifted up on a cross. Don't you think these words take on really profound meaning? I think what happened on that day was that Nicodemus was crushed. He didn't fully understand. Now remember, even the disciples didn't fully understand. 
But this day that Jesus is lifted up, Nicodemus basically says, I'm all in. The disciples are running and they're afraid and Nicodemus tells Joseph of Arimathea, remember what we talked about, what Jesus taught me? He's finally been lifted up and they don't care anymore. They're willing to risk it all. They bring their wealth. They bring the little tomb that they owned and they say, we've got it for Jesus. And what they brought in spices was significant. It was a huge contribution and they did it publicly. One of the reasons I love John 3 is that I think this story of conversion, of radical conversion and following Jesus is the kind of example that I want to experience in my own life and I want all of our our friends and neighbors and our church to experience. And it's living in the power, right, of who Jesus really is. And I love John 3 because he just tells us really clearly, this is who I am. He keeps going here. And he says this, he says, here's the point. God didn't send his his son into the world to judge it. Instead, he's here to rescue a world headed towards certain destruction. what's What's he saying? I think in many ways, he's declaring the same thing we saw in the story in Deuteronomy. He's saying to us and to Nicodemus, you're snake bit. You've been poisoned by sin. You've been poisoned in this life that is, is, is moving towards, not only thing that you can be moved towards is destruction. And I'm gonna be lifted up in a way that I can bring perfect healing and shalom to all of you. And when I'm lifted up, it'll change everything. I think this story of the disciples still being confused and Nicodemus moving forward is a beautiful, beautiful story. As we come to communion today, I wanna to invite you just to contemplate a few areas of your life and some of the simple truths that God may speak to us here and have a moment just to offer it back. So would you um, allow me just to pray over you for a few moments and invite you to contemplate a few of the things that God may be saying to you. Now for us, not many of us are powerful practicing Jews, but the reality is we have our own way of justifying that we're on the inside We have our own way of believing that we've done the right thing and we deserve what we've been given. As we lean into this story, though our issues are different than Nicodemus's, we're reminded once again that everything that God has blessed us with, the greatest gift of which is salvation, that it's only a gift. We don't deserve it and we can't earn it. And Lord God, as we pray, as we come to your table today, We pray that you would draw us in to the same kind of gratitude that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea experienced. We know that they went from a point of feeling like they were religious leaders doing the right thing to a point of conviction where they realized they were actually a part of the council that handed you over for crucifixion, that they were guilty in every way, and they chose to accept your love and your grace. Lord, may we do the same today. May we embrace you for who you really are. God, we pray that in the ways that you have called us to a spiritual rebirth, that we'd be a people that say yes, not knowing where you will take us. That we could respond in the same way today. Lord, if you want us to be a mentor, would you prompt us to be a mentor? 
Lord, if you desire that we would lean more fully into the study of Scripture and devoting our lives to you, if you have new opportunities for us, would you prompt us towards those? And would you help us to be the people that we're made to be that just say, yes, God, wherever your wind of the Spirit blows us, we would like to go. And God, we thank you that as we lean into this story, we're reminded that you came for all people in all places and all times. We thank you today for this bread. <coughs> we believe that it's a physical reminder of your love for us. That truly it is the ultimate love story. That you came from heaven to earth to be present with us, to teach us, and to redeem us. We thank you today for this cup, for this wine and juice that says to each and every one of us that you're a God of grace and forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, that our failures, though they are many, we have failed in many ways. Lord, we're grateful that you don't hold any of our failures against us, that as we confess them to you, that we find a perfection that's not our own. It's your perfection. And that you have forgiven us through what you've done on the cross. God, we thank you that throughout the gospels you tell us who you are. You tell us what you're up to in the world. And we thank you for this beautiful passage. Help us, Lord, as we go forward to never see one verse of this context just all on its own. But help us to see the big, beautiful story of what you taught Nicodemus and what you're teaching each of us. We pray that as we come to your table today, that we would grow in faith and in grace and in love for you. We pray all of this together, and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.